0: Hooray! Hooray. Hello, <laughs> Tim Fitzhire. Hello. Thank you very much for having me in. Thank you very much for coming in. It's very nice. Before I say anything else, yes, I wanted to thank you for something. What's that? I'm right in the depth of reading your book at the moment. Yes. And whenever I read a book, I always tend to think I'm the central character in it, <laughs> in my kind of subconscious. <laughs> and I went to the gym this morning, and oh no my goodness, way. I was like some kind of female Incredible Hulk (laughs) just going, I've got to work really hard if I'm going to get fit enough to make this happen. So thank you for that. That's, well, brilliant. Anyway, we'll come back to the book. So you are, well, kind of primarily a comedian... Harry a nominated, I know you from having seen you as Sir Tim on Andrew Maxwell's yes. Full, Mooners, yeah, full gig, Moon as Late Night King. Yeah, yeah. Which there's one of those coming up, we'll talk yes, about it later yeah. on. So you were doing kind of stand up and various yes. sketch shows and stuff, yes. but then that wasn't enough for you. Yes. So in 2003, Yes. you wanted to beat a world record. Yes. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com, and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long form interviews with stand up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic The World's Best Stand Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview.
1: I did, yeah. The oldest maritime record in the world. Is it really? Yeah, it was, yeah. Which was? The longest distance travelled in a boat entirely made out of paper.
0: So who did it initially? Uh,
1: 1619, think way back, David Flatline. And uh, it's a Royal Waterman, which was like the Queen's taxi driver, or the King's taxi driver. And he got a boat entirely made out of paper and took it 40 miles down the River Thames before it basically sank. And what I like about it as well is that he supported the paper boat with bladders blown up by prostitutes, right? Because he thought... It was the catchphrase in London was prostitutes can never drown a bee. And he went, oh, well, of course, if uh, prostitutes can never drown a bee, that means their air must float. That's brilliant. I'll use their air. <laughs> so that was his, like, theory. And so he was convinced that by having prostitute air in these bladders, it would it would all work out for him. He was The man was a genius. And he got two big fish for the oars and the rest of it was made out of paper. And, of course, the prostitute thing didn't work for him at all because, obviously, after 40 miles, it just was a distinctly sinking thing. And he actually had another bloke in the boat who apparently, according to the like old documents, was praying for death as a blessed relief. <laughs> so he's rowing <laughs> along the river with these two massive great oars and the prostitute bladder, like a massive blowjob, basically. He's rowing a blowjob down the river and he's got his two big oars and a man at the end going, God, please save us, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. You skipped the
0: uh, prostitute blown-up bladders.
1: Yeah. Well, yes and no. Basically, I stayed in a really shonky hotel uh, sort of halfway down the river one night, and it's actually on the river. And my cousin said, oh, it's amazing. We've got a really cheap deal. They'll let us pay by the hour. I was thinking that's really weird for a hotel. Anyway, so we stayed in this hotel, and it was halfway through the night that I began to realise that it was a bit weird. You know, it kind of had a mirrored ceiling, and you know the walls were kind of shaking on either side. And I, I sort of thought, yeah, you know what? I think we're staying in a really specialist form of hotel here. (laughs) And uh, so I did. I went out and I knocked on the door next door, and I kind of went, "Hello, you couldn't just blow into this for me, please, could you?" Did you really? Yeah, yeah. And this woman kind of just looked a bit baffled and slightly annoyed that I'd interrupted her night's work. Did she blow into it? Uh, she certainly used her lungs to their very best capacity, I'd say, <laughs> uh, in telling me to go.
0: Well, it brought you luck. You yeah, beat, you yeah I did. The... I, made it. I
1: made it. I made it 160 miles in a paper boat.
0: So you beat that record. Yeah, I did, yeah. But you didn't want to stop there. You decided that you had grander uh, yeah, ambitions. Big, big, bigger,
1: bigger plans. Normally, I have quite a dull life, really. I, I don't get out. Apart from when I'm playing with Maxwell, I don't really get out of the house a lot. And the paper boat had unlocked this kind of spirit of adventure within me. I guess I'd had it for years and that I'd tried for years to, you know, suppress this natural instinct to do something in a slightly different way. I guess, you know, when you're five years of age and you think, oh, I wonder how that works or oh, I wonder if I could do that using that. Or I wonder if that's possible, but with a a big bag instead of a, a pair of skis. And I think I've never quite lost that way of thinking. And so the next thing I decided to do was to row the English Channel in a bath. And uh, I guess I thought somebody had already rowed the channel in a bath, because it's the sort of thing you think somebody would have done that. And then I looked into it and people had tried and everyone else had failed. And I just thought, well, if they failed. Uh, it's got to be worth a shot, you, you know. Uh, it's got to be worth a chance. It might be possible. You never know. And had you rowed before? No, never rowed before. No, no. The paper boat was a kayak. Uh, it's a very different thing. You're going forward in a kayak, but completely backwards in a in a rowing boat. And I'd, I'd never done it before. I didn't know what I was doing. No idea. And um, I thought to myself, I need to get some advice on this. And so I phoned the British Olympic men's rowing first four. You know, Sir Matthew Pinson and James Cracknell and the other two, and I phoned them up and I kind of went, all right, you know, I need to learn how to row and stuff and uh, can I come and train with you and everything? And they went, yeah, that's fine. So I I went along and I started training with, with the men's Olympic first four, who are big lads, let's be fair. They're all quite big and strong. And I was doing the same distances in training as they were doing, but obviously considerably slower than they were doing them. So they basically do a training exercise, finish... And they had a pitch and putt thing that they go and like putt golf balls, and then I'd still be going up and down. They'd be putting golf balls. They'd start the next training exercise. I'd still be going up and down on the first training exercise. They'd finish that training exercise. I'd finally finish the first training exercise. They'd kind of go home for the day. I'd carry on training during the second training exercise, and then I'd go over the day. So their training was was more condensed than my training. But we did the same distances, yeah, absolutely.
0: But you managed to learn how to row yeah, as well. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I became pretty OK at rowing, yeah. I went from never having done it in a sort of three months to training with the Olympic squad, which is uh, a learning curve.
0: Well, that was obstacle number one, couldn't yes. row. Yeah. But then yeah. what about the legal side of it?
1: Well, it turns out that the French own half the English Channel which is a bit of a legal problem in that they were very kind to start with, they are very, very lovely and, you know, we had lots of chats and there were lots of love coming across the English Channel. They sent me documents and paperwork and all sorts of lovely stuff. Nothing seemed to be too much trouble. They even went to the extent of putting a new clause in the French Shipping Act, making it illegal to row a bathtub in French waters.
0: Purely because of you. Yeah,
1: yeah, which in the context of my plan, as you've seen, it's a bit of a blow in that obviously... That then meant that if I did row the channel in a bath and go into French waters, I'd then be arrested by the French Navy. I'd then never see a, a civil court of justice. I'd see a, a Navy court. You know, it was a, it's all fairly serious at that point. And I thought to myself, look, this has got to be a test. What they can't be saying is, Tim, you can't row the channel in a bathtub. We're not going to let that happen. They must be saying, if you're really serious about this channel bathtub stuff, then prove it. So I put on a tie. And uh, because I can be quite serious in a tie and I went to the Ministry of Transport in Whitehall and I said, uh, now this is what we're going to do gentlemen, because that's how they talk in the Ministry of Transport I said, now this is what we're going to do we are going to register my bath as a registered British shipping vessel and to my complete amazement the Ministry of Transport went, yeah that's fair enough Tim Uh, and it's, I've got the paperwork and I do show it off in the show because people never believe me when I say this And what I love about it specifically is that you have to put it in a category of boat to get it registered as a shipping vessel. And um, it's a sports boat. (laughs) That's what they put it through as. So it's now a registered British ship, which means that I can row it wherever I want in the world. And they said, oh, providing you fly the red ensign flags, that's very important. And so as long as I fly this, this red ensign flag, which you see on every boat, then I can row it wherever I want, which is great. So I phoned the French back and said, oh, it's not a bath now, it's a registered British shimmy vessel. And I'm a captain. And then I phoned the French back and went, it's a, it's a ship, it's a ship. And they went, have you changed the design? And I went, nope, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was really nice. So I, then there was no legal bar in any place at all, which was great.
0: So you could take your bath across. Absolutely. And so you set off. And and also, the other thing is, um, you can't just go, oh, well, I fancy going on Tuesday, so I'll go then. Mm. You've got to...
1: Well, for bathtub rowing, you need really quite good weather. Bad weather, it's not good for bathtub rowing. Because obviously, as it turns out, Rowing the English Channel, and I didn't know this when I set off, is the hardest rowing challenge is a single seat rower in a single sitting that you can possibly undertake. The reason for that is the current and the tide. Rowing the Atlantic is obviously very tough but you do that over many many days. Rowing the channel you start and you can't stop. You've got to keep going otherwise you get swept off either down to Portugal or up to Reykjavik so it, and neither of those is a great idea and so you've just got to keep keep going and not stop until you hit land and that's why it's a tough challenge because obviously It's that endurance aspect of not giving in and not stopping and and all the rest of it. And I didn't know that. You know, I had no idea it was such a tough challenge. And then I turn up and try and do it in a bathtub. And not just any bathtub, but a third of a ton roll top Victorian copper Thomas Crapper bathtub. You know, I mean, it really is ridiculous. I've taken on the hardest rowing challenge in the world in the most ridiculous vessel. And um, so it was a problem on lots of levels, really. And had I have known that in the first place, I may have been a little more reluctant to probably uh, take it on. But in a way, because I was so naive and I just thought of the idea and I thought of the brilliant kind of, oh, I must throw the channel in a bath, that'd be great. I never at any point went, oh, it's really hard, I must stop doing that. The kind of adult parts of your brain just don't take over. You kind of go, oh, I'll just do it, I'll just do it. So I just got the bath, got out there, and then obviously hit the thing of weather, whereby if you're out there in bad weather, I mean, I, I, the first time I tried it, I don't want to ruin the book for you, the first time I tried it, I got hit by really quite bad weather and I was only four miles off finishing it. And uh, a storm hit me. You know, my rubber duck turns to me and goes, "I'm just going out. I may be some time." And I'm thinking, "This is bad. This is very bad." Then the mist comes in. I I, I lost the support vessel. The roll top got ripped off the Victorian copper bath. It's it got chucked out of the water by a wave and slipped my arm so badly that you know my arm went all floppy and stopped working properly. It was a bit of a grim situation. You know, something hit the hull, (laughs) the bottom, the hull, the bottom of the bath, put a hole in it, not the plug hole another hole and the bar starts trying to sink and I'm rowing along with one arm going no, nobody panic nobody panic I'm British keep on keep going keep going it's going to be fine Uh, my shower head had snapped off uh, on a low swing bridge in Folkestone Harbour I'd lost the mechanical kit the GPS system and my compass wasn't working my watch wasn't working I couldn't see where I was going it's a 4-7 storm I don't know if there's anyone listening who's a sailor but that is two two and a half meter waves crashing down on me in a bath which is more water than you need in a bath and uh, it's just utterly terrifying and so in bad weather it gets really really problematic in good weather there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to write in a
0: bathtub so that happened you yeah. were four miles away from france yeah. yeah and you had to give up
1: well yeah really um the support boat found me it was less a case of giving up it was more a case of being dragged you know having lost a lot of blood slightly bedraggled from the water attached to a third of a tonne sinking object. I mean, they were slashing me through the the lines because I'd gone delirious. And I basically decided that I'd storm lash myself to the bath and would go down with the bath in the finest traditions of the Royal Navy. And so I was fully expecting, like, you know... And the bath would go down and I'd be on top saluting maybe with my remaining good arm as the bath sank deep into the water and the, the guys that got me when the support vessel found me the only reason why they found me is because i've been rowing with one arm in a massive great big circle for 40 minutes and just <laughs> rowing around them in this huge big circle and so you know heroically in a storm for goodness knows how 40 minutes or something ridiculous so i mean it was really lucky to survive basically and got back and it was and it got patched back together i was really gutted actually not to have sort of made it properly across the first time I got quite down about it I, you know, because it, it's a ridiculous challenge it's a really stupid thing to do it's like somebody repeatedly running into a brick wall with their own head but it was my really stupid challenge and I really really wanted to do it and I really wanted to achieve that um, and uh, and I, I I couldn't wait to get back and have another crack at it, really. And
0: could you not, like, in spite of the fact that you nearly died? Were you not yeah. thinking, mm-hmm.
1: no I I wanted to have another go. I really wanted to have another go. I wanted to do it. I, it's one of those things where I, I get a little, little, little bit obsessed with stuff, like the paper boat or the whole living in a cave, like a medieval knight thing. I'm, I'm going to ask get you obsessed about that. Right? With, yeah, I just get obsessed with these Anyone listening to this is probably going, have I taken something really, really hard? Um, But I just get really obsessed with these little single ideas and I follow them through with this kind of five-year-old glee and I just hate giving in on them. I think they're possible. That means they should be.
0: So you decided to attempt to, but you had some bolstering from someone that you used to play with at primary school Mm. sent you an email. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, very kind. It's, It's weird, isn't it, how life pans out. When I was little... In a tiny little village school in Derbyshire, there was a girl that I used to hang out with and and we were kind of slightly, not outcast, that's probably a bit harsh, but we were certainly not the coolest kids in the school and we used to end up having to play on our own quite a lot. You know, we'd invent little games, for running matches and stuff. We were a very close little pair of loons in the corner and who would have thought that she would have grown up to become Helen MacArthur? It's extraordinary. I can't uh, tell you how bizarre that is. And go on to conquer the world in terms of boating and sailing. An immense sense of pride comes from me, you know, because I always thought she was brilliant. And she was, as I say, my best friend when I was little. And so, of course, when I'd failed in the bath, she heard about it and very kindly sent me a, a note saying, Don't panic, this is all, you know, everyone's failed in their time. Give it another crack. And uh, it was one of those things because it made me go back to when we were five and six. And it made me think, yeah, everything's possible for us then. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be possible now, you know. And we should just get on with it. And that's certainly what we probably have in common more than anything else, I guess.
0: And then there was some more light brightness yeah. in that Thomas Crapper and son who had provided you with the bath. Yeah, yeah. Also, because you were supposed to be raising money for... Yeah, Comic
1: Relief. that was my big plan.
0: And Thomas Crapper and son, in the meantime, provided you with something to auction off to raise some money.
1: That's right, yeah. Um, His Majesty King George V's travel bath which is an incredible thing. It's got silver taps and plumbing and everything. It was put on the royal train in the First World War uh, so that King George could go around the country and rally. And he said, I'll go and do it, I'll go and do it, but I must have a bathtub on my train, otherwise I'm not leaving the house, and it must have silver taps and silver plumbing and everything must be silver. And so this amazing thing, the current queen wanted a slightly larger bath apparently and so she had the royal travel bath taken out of the royal train and thomas crapper and company took it back to their offices where it's just sat really lying around and they said oh you must have that to auction off for your charity which was very kind of them but then the auction thing went badly wrong as well you know my life wasn't going really well at that stage i'd failed to cross the channel in the bath the ray of sunshine was my lovely king george v's travel bath with the silver taps and the silver plumbing and everything and I was going to auction that off and then this brilliant events company got involved and they they uh, organised this auction in a beautiful big house in the middle of London and they found me uh, Cartier diamonds and gems and watches and furniture and all sorts of stuff and they opened a bank account for me because I was still in hospital at the time so that was very kind of them and then they invited Tom Cruise of course to the to the auction uh, which was the most bizarre thing to see a letter from Tom Cruise's office just going yes we'll come to Tibbs charity auction that's all absolutely fine and I was going wow Oh, this is all really quite OK, this is amazing. And then it turned out that the events company, basically the house that they got to hold the auction in the middle of London turned out to have been swindled out of a third world government by an unscrupulous group of British businessmen in the late 90s, which is not a great place to hold an auction to raise money for a charity, Comic Relief, that spends money on projects in the very country from which the house has been nicked that's not ideal. The second thing is that they then turned out that the bank account that they'd opened was offshore, my bank account, and I wasn't a signatory to it. And some money from some accounts that had been shut down by customs and excise had somehow ended up in my bank account, which I didn't have any access to. So again, it was basically fraud. I was becoming involved in multi-million pound international money laundering, which I didn't really understand how it all worked. That's not a defence in law, apparently, but, you know. And then it turned out that the furniture and the jewels and all of that stuff was nicked. So they were basically intending to fence off stolen goods in my charity auction under the nose of the whole British press and sell them to Tom Cruise, which was a disaster. You were just kind of going, how has this happened? How have I gone for a really simple idea, which is to row the channel in a bath, to raise some cash for charity, to becoming involved in multi-million pound international fraud it's not ideal
0: luckily you stopped in time I did actually yeah I was really
1: lucky it was one of those really stupid things where something just didn't add up and I think it was even the flowers it was something really trivial where the guy from the events company went oh the flowers are all sorted it's all absolutely fine everything's paid for and I just thought well how is it paid for How, where is this money coming from and so I phoned the flower people I mean, it's the most innocent thing, isn't it, that suddenly led me to discover this horrible nightmare. And the flower people said, no, 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 we're, we're still not being paid. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, invoices outstanding, actually, to the same company. And I went, oh, right, that's interesting. And then phoned another one of the suppliers for this auction and said, oh, have you been paid? And they went, no, we haven't been paid either yet, and we were expecting to get paid a couple of weeks ago. And that's how it all started to sort of unravel in my, in my mind. And I kind of went, ah. I think we've got to pull the plug on this.
0: Bad luck, but you stopped it in the nick of time. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) then we get to, as you've not been arrested for international espionage, attempt two to cross the Channel. Yeah, yeah. Happy day. Weather's brilliant. Bath is all fixed up.
1: Yeah, Bath got fixed. Yeah, it was great.
0: So you get in the boat. Yep. You've got your support boat. Yep. You decided this time to leave at four in the morning.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, basically, the way that weather works, it's really boring, but in a really basic way, the earth heats up, It releases a lot of moisture. That creates wind and rain. That's kind of what happens during the day. So the sun basically heats the ground, and that releases moisture up into the atmosphere, which then creates day breezes and that sort of thing. That's a really simplistic... there's any meteorologist, they're going to be (laughs) thinking, no, that's not how it works. But it, it basically is. So I'd worked out that if we could get across the channel before those kind of day weather conditions kicked off then we'd be home and dry. We'd be absolutely great, which is why it tends to be a lot stiller out on the sea, you know, at kind of early in the morning times and mid-mornings tends to be a little bit calmer. Um... I mean it's, not, it's ne- never a hard and fast rule But it seemed to me that that was the way it was going to go And so we left really, really early in the morning Four o'clock
0: And so it kind of did And the first several hours and miles went pretty yep. calmly yep, And yep, everything absolutely. was fine yep. And then... Uh, then we
1: hit a slight hitch again In that basically the way that the current works Again it's normally when you row the channel You row the channel in a boat that weighs the same as three bags of sugar The bath is a third of a ton Moving that as a single human being is a tough, tough gig and you don't need a lot of current to really affect how fast I'm able to go in the bath. And so the current kicked off at one point and the wind kicked off. And it meant that I sat still, although I was rowing at 28 strokes a minute. In the boat race, they go at 33, and I was on 28, which is about the fastest that I could possibly do. I've been rowing for six hours by this stage. You know, I was not entirely fresh as a daisy by that point. And so I sat still in the water, although I was rowing as fast as possible. In my direction, the water, the current and the wind were holding me absolutely dead still. The demoralising thing for me is I could see a boy in the middle of the channel, a channel marker, and I could see it wasn't moving. I could see it wasn't getting further away from me for about an hour and a half. And for an hour and a half, I sat there rowing at 28 strokes a minute, nearly, like, combusting of, you know, oxygen just running in and out of my body, just going, you can't let this give in again. You can't be beaten by this again. So it's quite a dark place you have to go to in your mind.
0: But at that point, physically, you were kind of a mess, right? Yeah, I was a bit of a mess. wrists were as wide as your hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It all didn't go very well, did it? Chafing. Yeah, a lot of chafing on the the nether regions.
0: And did you not think... you know, if you weren't moving, no. there was no point. No, no, no. When-
1: no, because no, no, I knew I'd make it.
0: What about your support, Bo?
1: I think they were saying time to give up on this as a, as a plan. Time to, you know, maybe think about turning around and giving up and those sort of... That's not helpful. Not very m- motivating as a team. <laughs> yeah, time to give up. You know, have a nice cup of tea and a bacon sandwich. That's not what you need to hear at this point in the day. I sort of locked everything else out and just thought I've just got to keep going. My theory was if I could just string it together for another 20 minutes and then another 20 minutes and then another 20 minutes and even to the extent of another 100 strokes, another 100 strokes. If I could just keep string together a few strokes then I knew eventually the tide would change in some way it would either get much much worse or it get much much better and luckily for me it got better
0: as well as being physically in a mess yeah. you were hallucinating
1: yeah yeah that's fair to say I think I was quite it was a very hot day I'd lost a lot of fluid by that stage and I did go a bit lally because <laughs> I had trained on the River Thames and I thought I saw the whole it was really clear to me the whole of the River Thames All of the banks, all of the little people that I saw every day, they were all very clearly floating in the English Channel next to me in the water. And it was very, very clear in my head. I was waving to them and I was saying, hello, floating people. And it was very, very clear in my mind that they were all real and they were all there. And obviously they weren't. I was completely wrong. And I kept passing out. By the end, it was a complete, it was a last minute ditch attempt to get that bath across the Channel
0: there you've been in the same place for an hour and a half your support boat who are supposed to be encouraging you are trying to get you to stop yeah you're bleeding everywhere you're swollen everywhere you keep Mm. passing out Mm. if it had been someone else doing this and you were in the support boat yeah do you think you would have gone time to stop now Tim Uh,
1: yeah I think I might have done I, I think I probably didn't look the best you know if you were a training coach you might be saying we have a an issue here It's the Eddie the Eagle Edwards syndrome, isn't it? It's kind of like he hasn't got a hope in hell of making that jump and yet still he has a crack at it. It really was that sort of determination perhaps that got me through it. I don't know. It's a very... It's a self thing. You just have to keep focused on where you're going and just believe that you can make it through a bit.
0: It's, I'd say, quite a British thing as well, do you think? Maybe, maybe it is. Steely determination maybe, maybe, in the maybe, face maybe it of. Yes, 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 I'm sure it is.
1: <laughs> well, it's Randall, I mean, look at Randolph Fiennes. Three times, you know, he had a heart attack the first time, the second time, nearly got blown off the top of Everest, and then the third time, made it up the top as a pensioner. That's what you're talking about. It's a man. It is quite British. You're absolutely right, perhaps. That's something very, very determined about British people and that, and that's historically the brand isn't it you know I mean Britain's the people that go off and die trying to discover they discover the North Pole they die nearly discovering the North Pole. That's what we do. We don't actually... There's no finesse there. It's not like, what was it, the Swedes that went off and glided into the North Pole, discovered it, brilliant. Oh, fantastic, turn around, go back. Scott goes out there, dies doing it. And that's, you know, Franklin dies trying to discover the Northwest Passage or whatever it is, which is of completely no use at all uh, economically and in any other way. And yet Franklin died at his own shoes and then died. (laughs) Uh, try to do it. There is something quite British about that real determination. You're quite right.
0: And I suppose as well, there's something British about being impressed by it and finding it noble rather than just quite stupid. Yeah, maybe it is.
1: Maybe that. Maybe the nation's changing, though. Maybe the nation's changing. I don't know. Maybe it isn't. But who knows?
0: Anyway, thankfully, you didn't die. You made it. You made it to France. Yeah. That wasn't it, though.
1: No. Then, uh, then I become inveigled in a bet to win one pint of beer by rowing the bathtub back to Tower Bridge. Uh, which I'd taken on when I'd failed in the first attempt and I rather ambitiously thought that I would succeed in the second attempt and then make it back to Tower Bridge.
0: Hang on, how many miles across the channel? Well, it's
1: 21 as the crow flies, but because of the bath being so heavy and because I had to row it in such an extraordinary, stupid way... I had to row 33 miles across the channel.
0: And then how many miles to Tower Bridge? From where? From where you were having to row from, from Folkestone. Uh, 170. (laughs) Yes. So you'd already undertaken this insane challenge and managed it? Yes, yes. And then you had to do.
1: 170 extra miles, yes. For one pint of beer, yes, yes. Which, on reflection, was a bad plan, really. But I think, in a way, it was quite nice because I made it to Tower Bridge and it was nice that people were able to then feel involved in it. The coulée at Tower Bridge was great. All the boats that came out and all the people that came on the bank and and on the bridges and all the rest of it. That wouldn't have happened if I had just stopped at France. There was something really nice about coming back to London and finishing it really in the heart of London. There's something really nice about that. Now they sent the Thames fire ships out and they blow sm- um, water in huge big saluting fountain things. And the Navy came out with an escort boat and I landed on the Navy boat and got out. And there, all the sailors were saluting up the gangplank and all the rest of it. And, and the City of London came down with big men in fluffy hats and gloves and shaking hands and everything. And all of that stuff that happened just would not have happened had we finished it just by rowing the channel you know and it was an amazingly beautiful moment to finish rowing i think finishing in london was the right thing to do even though it took another god knows how many days of rowing
0: and the little five-year-old boy inside of you must have been just in ecstasy with all of these
1: (laughs) just over the moon
0: i mean how exciting
1: is that you get sailing boats coming out rowing boats uh kayaks like a massive flotilla of crazy boats and then the navy as well to top it all off it's just brilliant Really brilliant.
0: You then got invited to go and meet the Queen. Yes,
1: yes, I did, yes. Yes, that was a turn up for the books. I didn't see that one coming.
0: And you got on very well with
1: her. Yeah, she's lovely. She's a really nice person. I'm sure everyone uh, listening to this has of course met the Queen. This is XFM after all. But uh, she is a really, really nice person. She's very funny, very, very funny. And has a great sense of humour and a sparkling laugh and all the rest of it. She said things like, um, did you not think of putting a sail on the bath? And I said, well, I did think of a shower curtain, Your Majesty, but I couldn't decide on the colour. And she said, I think blue, don't you? And you just think that's really nice. She, she was clearly twinkling and laughing away. And we were basically giggling like five-year-olds for about 20 minutes together, because she just was really really lovely enchanting woman
0: there's a lovely quote from uh, one of the ladies in waiting who was immediately after turned to you and said we don't often see the boss laughing like yeah that.
1: <laughs> yeah that's a true story yeah i'm sure they do i'm sure they're just being polite but she was very kind and i think i guess if you're the queen you can kind of move down m- move down the order of people pretty swiftly if you're not getting on and you don't, you have entertained me enough now i'm going to move on to you and i guess if you're there for any more than five minutes you've done all right it's kind of like the most pressured stand-up environment in the world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's like going on in Glasgow at the stand in Glasgow, and sort of walking on stage and going. And you can see the clock ticking by at the back, and every second you're going, "I've got to come out with funnies right now, otherwise I'm going to get Whoa, this is going to go badly." There we go. There's the funny. That's that's another one for another minute, and it's the same sort of pressure, I guess. It's weird,
0: but even more so if
1: it's yeah, maybe, maybe. match.
0: So this whole story is in your book. Yeah, it is, yeah. Which, there's a new version yeah, of it coming out.
1: Yeah, there is, called uh, All at Sea, and that's coming out the week that I'm doing a show in London, one of my very rare
0: London gigs. Before I mention the date of the show, I have to say with the book, I'm about mm. halfway through at the moment, and... Um, I'm, generally, I'm not good with books that aren't fiction or sort of straight autobiography. Like, when it's books about stuff, my brain a little bit goes, oh, this is a bit like homework. But this one, I'm only halfway through. I've cried twice. I've had people stare at me on the tube because I'm gasping. I've been so gripped. As I mentioned earlier, it's making me exercise more. Oh, goodness me. It's very exciting. So that's coming out. And then you're doing the show at the Udder Belly on the South Bank. I am, um, yeah. upside-down purple cow, which that's is... Uh, the 14th. Of July. Yeah, at July. At 7pm.
1: Yes. Come along, come along.
0: And you touched on this earlier. Yeah. Trying to dress up as a knight in the Spanish yeah. desert. Yeah.
1: That was a book that I read that I really loved. That's how that started. That was a book called Don Quixote by Cervantes, which is a Spanish book. And we don't really get taught it in school, which is really stupid. It's the first ever novel in the history of the world. Cervantes was like, he died on the same day as Shakespeare or something. And um, while Shakespeare was inventing plays, Cervantes was inventing novels. And it's about a guy who basically wants to become a knight, who falls in love with a woman who he never speaks to and loves from afar and runs off and has heroic adventures. And I just thought this was a brilliant idea. I thought, what a great aspiration to have. You know, he's an ordinary farmer who wants to become a knight in an age where there was this huge kind of social class system and prejudice. And I thought, brilliant. I'll go and become a knight. I'll go and find a woman to love from afar. I will undertake heroic adventures. That's what I'll do. And so that then obviously led on to another series of disasters, which led to me ending up living in a cave in Spain, in a desert, trying desperately to marry Claire Sweeney, the presenter of the 60-minute makeover, which was a bizarre twist of fate, uh, in a suit of armour, of course. That was the other slight problem with the whole plan. You know, I had to get a suit of armour through Stansted Airport when there was the terrorist alert on. How this did you a complete, manage it? Yeah, it was pretty tough, actually. I had to go for an interview in a side room with a mad set of security people who thought I was a football hooligan because England <laughs> were playing some football match in Eastern Europe and I was going, yeah, but I'm going to Spain. And they were going, but you might drive from Spain to Eastern Europe and then become a football hooligan. And I was going, but I wouldn't do that. Why would I want to do that? how What makes you think I'm a football hooligan? But the thing was, at no point, nobody said to me in the, all the interviews that I went through at Stansted, why have you got the armour on? Nobody said to me, what's the armour? Nobody asked me about it. They just Were you, were you assumed... wearing it
0: at the time? Well,
1: I was wearing the breastplate, yeah. <laughs> and they just assumed that I was a football hooligan wearing my private armour to go and be a football... What? How many football hooligans has anyone seen wearing a proper medieval suit of armour? I haven't seen one. But I made it to Spain and uh, it was the most wonderful uh, kind of... It's amazing, isn't it, where you step outside life and do something completely ridiculous Just how people respond to you. And in my case, you know, I was living in this cave and a whole bunch of Chinese tourists were diverted via my cave because Don Quixote, the book, is huge in China because they see it as... um, a big communist uh text it's a communist like parable basically or, or that's the way they read it <laughs> it's not but anyway a huge coachloads of chinese tourists were diverted via my little cave and the spanish tour guides who don't miss a trick were kind of going this is the guy it was written about <laughs> This is the actual guy. And the Chinese guys are kind of going, Oh, I've got to have my picture taken with him. And well, by that stage, I got, you know, I I wasn't acting normally, let's put it that way. I was going, No, no, I mustn't be photographed by cameras. They're evil. They'll take everything away from me. I was like one of the, like a tribe who'd never seen a camera going, No, no, you mustn't photograph me. It's an invention that hasn't been invented yet in my world. And all these Chinese people going, Oh, he really is Don Quixote. This is exactly the kind of stuff in the book. Which chapter's that bit in? And it was just a weird, weird. Weird adventure, but a really lovely time in my life.
0: How does it work with becoming a knight? Do you feel that you're a knight now? No, is it just, no. Um... I
1: chased the knighthood like you wouldn't believe. There was this cash for honours thing crisis. You remember that mm. in the government thing, and somebody was paying somebody for giving some money to a political party. I tried everything. I remember writing a letter to Number Ten saying, "Now listen here. Look, allegedly you're giving out peerages for a million pounds a pop. A million pounds is quite a lot of money." Please find enclosed, a £10 book voucher, and can I have a nighthood, please? And to my amazement, Tony Blair actually wrote back. He, said, he sent me a letter going, I can't accept this £10 book voucher. It's a parliamentary bribe and uh, you've got to take it back to him. We all admire you and your bathtub rowing. <laughs> we all admire you and your bathtub rowing. I was going, oh, that's a bit odd. Uh, but I really can't accept this. Please uh, spend it on something nice for a charity. Uh, yours is a Tony, Tony Blair. And I was like, well, that's fair enough. He's seen my cunning trap and uh, <laughs> has rejected it and sent me back the £10 book voucher. But it was really, uh, yeah, really, really bizarre. But So I tried bribing the Prime Minister. didn't get one there. I tried doing all sorts of. I would like write letters to him uh, I tried doing all sorts of weird medieval championships like worm charming and cheese chasing and wool sack racing and all the medieval stuff that this country has left. I went and did it and tried to win and I won one of them and I wrote a letter going I have won a medieval championship that has to mean you've got to give me a knighthood now uh, yours sincerely, Tim and he didn't write back that time I tried to find the king of the world's smallest kingdom and get him to give me a knighthood. <laughs> I tried everything to get hold of a knighthood.
0: Not even with your, you know, you and the queen being like that? No, Off that was dear. the
1: one avenue that I, I, I didn't try, actually. I just thought, oh, maybe, I, maybe I should have done, maybe I should have done. But in the end, actually, I did, the king of the smallest kingdom in the world heard that I'd been trying to track him down. And sent me a knighthood in the post.
0: (laughs) So you got one. So you're officially Sir Tim. Yeah, yeah. Which was really nice. That's amazing. It came in
1: a brown paper envelope, which was lovely.
0: (laughs) So will you be being Sir Tim at um, Andrew Maxwell's Full Full Mooners? Full Mooners
1: is definitely on. That's on in the same cow next to the London Eye where I'm playing in July. In June the 19th
0: Friday the 19th of June So this is Andrew Maxwell's late night gig Full Mooners Full Mooners Which is great It's on at 10.45 The world's
1: only late night Hammer Horror Hip Hop Muppet Show
0: And you said that there's a guest That you know about Yeah
1: we've got three guests There'll be obviously me Maxwell Some break dancers I think Lady Carol of course The wonderful songstress Who's just won an award For the best live musical event In Brighton That's right And she is on stage with us And three guests One of whom is Terry Alderton, the other two of whom are still under wraps. Okay, that's, I won't that's exciting. That yeah, I know. it must be
0: pretty good. Oh,
1: well, you know, if we're releasing Terry this early, who <laughs> is brilliant, we've got to have something great held back.
0: So that's Friday the nineteenth of June. Yeah, um, full moon is ten forty-five. Uh, yeah, it is absolutely at the Uda so on Saturday night. Bank, late night one. Your show is Tuesday the fourteenth of July, yes. seven p.m. All yes. at Sea. The uh, new version of your book, All at Sea, will be out that week as well. Absolutely. All of this information yeah. can be found on your website.
1: Yes, it which can. is Fitziam. Tim
0: Fitziam, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. It's very kind. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Marin. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to yesyes. Marsha.com forward slash off the mic